All right. Well, good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see all of you here today. I see a couple new faces, and we're happy that you're with us. Uh, You're jumping in midstream in a series through the book of Acts. And so today I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, and and here we're looking at an interesting passage. Um, Our text today is going to cover really two episodes, and these episodes are the opening episodes in the city of Ephesus. So Paul is now coming into his third missionary journey. And uh, the city of Ephesus is an interesting place. He, he winds up spending three years in Ephesus. And if you've been tracking with uh, this series, you know that he, he's not typically able to spend that much time in a new city. And so the things that are accomplished in Ephesus are fantastic. And the work that God does is amazing. Um, but today we're looking at the opening episodes. And in fact, in the first episode, Paul's not even there yet. Um, But as we look at these opening episodes, we're going to see a couple things, and this isn't the main point of our passage, but I just want to pull out this lesson before we go any further. Um, When we come into a new place, and we might apply this in our own lives, when we minister to new people, we need to meet people where they are. And so we need to get a good, a good assessment on, on just their understanding because you don't want to speak past people and you don't want to assume things. So you've got to get a sense of where they are. Uh, we saw that when Paul was ministering in Athens. He took his time to walk around the city and looked at the idols and, and got a real sense of, of what was shaping the thinking of these people. And here in Ephesus, we discover that people have been shaped by the ministry of John the Baptist. And that comes with some incredible advantages, which we'll see, but it, it also comes with some challenges. And the lesson, this isn't the main point, but one of the lessons is we do need to meet people where they are. Figure out the questions that they're already asking and, and open God's word and answer those. We're going to see Paul and his team do that today. But then I would also say we see here in this story the value of correction. Um, you don't need to raise your hand, but I wonder if anyone here has ever been corrected. It, in our flesh, that's something that we struggle with, isn't it? We don't always recognize correction as a gift. But the Bible is clear that correction is a gift. And actually, you're a fool if you despise correction. It's, it's a real tremendous blessing when people come and they speak the truth to us and they clarify things. And as we come into this opening episode in Ephesus, it's not particularly glamorous. What we see are Paul and these workers correcting misunderstandings, figuring out where people are at in their understanding, and then, and then making corrections because doctrine matters and the truth matters. And so that's what we're looking at today. In particular, that's going to push us into uh, some thoughts about baptism, but, but that's the trajectory. So here now, the word of the Lord, we're looking at Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 24, and we're going to read all the way to Acts chapter 19, verse 7. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." 
And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as I read that, I suspect verse 6, um, as they, they, the Holy Spirit falls on them, they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. You've probably got some questions about that. We're going to get there, so you can put a pin in that. Um, but here, as we are looking at two episodes in Ephesus, what we discover is that within these two episodes, there's one common misunderstanding. Did you catch it? First, we meet Apollos, and Apollos is, by all accounts, a Christian. Somewhere along the way, he's, he's come to hear about Jesus, he's put his trust in Jesus. Nevertheless, it appears that he's a little bit fuzzy in his doctrine. Verse 25 says, being fervent in spirit, he, Apollos, spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. In the second episode, we meet these 12 disciples, and they're not believers. They are, if, if Apollos is fuzzy, they're all in the dark, right? So Paul asks them, when he meets them, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So you see this common thread, this common misunderstanding here in Ephesus, which leads me to say, if we want to understand what's happening here in Ephesus, then we need to ask the question, what was the baptism of John? So let's think about that. Maybe, maybe for some of us, first we need to ask the question, who is John? Who are we talking about here? Well, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last Old Covenant prophet, meaning he was the last prophet that was proclaiming the coming of Messiah before Jesus, the Messiah, came. John was out in the wilderness and he was dressed in, in camel skins and he was with a belt and eating locusts and honey and crowds were flocking to him and he was preaching and preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. It appears that Apollos and these 12 men were all impacted by John's ministry. And they all apparently received John's baptism. But again, what does that mean? What was the baptism of John? There's two things we need to see if we're going to understand what's happening here. So first, the baptism of John was a symbol of repentance. We know this because that's exactly what Paul says in verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. So as we look in the Gospels and we, we get little glimpses of John's ministry, we discover that John was a, a preacher who really had a powerful two-point sermon. And the first point of John's sermon was that we need to repent. So he's in the wilderness and he's preaching to people and they're coming to him and his message is that you are sinners. You are sinful people. You've broken covenant with God. God said that we should do this, but you do that, and that's sin, and it's wrong, and you need to turn away from that, and you need to repent. That's point one of John's sermon. And I won't, we'll put it in his words. We see this in Luke 3. 
John is preaching here, and John is pleading with the crowds that have come to him. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Let's pause there. So Jewish people are coming to him, and he's saying, you you presume that you're okay, that you're in right relationship with God because you're descendants of Abraham. But he's saying, no, you're not actually keeping the covenant that God made with Abraham. You're living in rebellion. So he goes on to say, do not presume to say, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. The teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So here in this glimpse into John's preaching, again, we're seeing the first point in his sermon. And his sermon is a call to repentance. And if we listen closely to his sermon, we learn something about true repentance, don't we? You know, sometimes there's a misunderstanding that repentance is simply to say sorry. Um, Hey, sorry about that. There's repentance. No, no, repentance begins with sorry, but repentance then leads to a change of action. It, the, the word kind of conveys this complete 180. Like, you're, I was going this way, now I'm going this way. I was doing that wrong thing, but now I'm sorry for it, and I'm not doing it anymore. And so that's why he speaks specifically to these groups of people. They thought they were fine. They thought because of who their parents were and their descendants were that they were okay. And he says, no, no, no. Look at the fruit of your lives. Look at the things you're doing. And so when they say, well, what... What do I need to do as I repent? The tax collector, for example. He says, well, you need to say sorry, but then you need to stop taking more money from people than you're supposed to. So it's more than sorry, it's also a change of action. And he says to the soldiers, you need to say sorry, but you also need to stop using your position of power to to extort money from people. And in each of these cases, he's touching on the sin in their lives and he's saying, you need to completely change your actions. That's repentance. And people hearing that and responding to that then proceeded to go into the water and they were baptized by John and that was a symbol of repentance. That was a symbol of them saying, I am sorry and I'm going to turn a different direction. Okay, so it was that. But then it was more than that. I mentioned he's got a two-part sermon. That was the first part. But what else does this baptism represent? They're not just saying, I repent. It was also a sign of anticipation. We see that in verse 4 as well. The Apostle Paul explains, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, Listen, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So John's baptism was never meant to be seen as an end. John didn't see himself as the finish line. He saw himself as the one who was preparing the way for what is coming. Because what is coming is what you need. 
John said this. We read in verses 15 to 16 of Luke 3. The people were waiting expectantly. And they were all wondering in their their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. He was a pretty unique guy, right? John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who's more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John was saying right from the outset, he said, I am not the end. This baptism is not the end. This baptism is a sign of your anticipation and your preparation for the one who is coming. And so people who received John's baptism, that's what they were meant to be learning. That's the sign. I repent, I'm a sinner, and I'm looking forward to whatever and whoever is coming, this coming Messiah. But we see here in Ephesus that not everyone who listened to John fully understood the sermon. And not everyone who received John's baptism fully understood the symbol. So first we meet Apollos. Remember, two episodes, so two different kind of levels of understanding. In Apollos, we see someone who, he was a little fuzzy, but he, he pretty well got it. He recognized Jesus as the Messiah. He spoke and taught accurately about Jesus. But there was obviously some fuzziness surrounding baptism, because in verse 25, it says, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John, right? So that seems to be the, the flaw here. He, he's fuzzy there. And so then Priscilla and Aquila, who have sat under Paul's teaching and happen to be in Ephesus, they hear this brother preaching and they say, we need to straighten him out here. And I love the example that we find in verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Which is just a beautiful demonstration of how we can encourage one another and sharpen one another and correct one another without embarrassing and humiliating and berating one another. Um, I love their example in pulling him aside and dealing with that privately. And I love his example in receiving that. And clearly he got straightened out because by the end of chapter 18, the church is so excited about Apollos that they're happy to send him to Achaia. And he teaches there, and God does wonderful things there. And so here we see this one misunderstanding solved. But then as we look at the second episode, that's where we've got kind of some deeper issues. These guys, as I mentioned, they're not just fuzzy. They're, they're in the dark. Uh, they Paul comes, and have you received the Spirit? They say, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Remember John's anticipation? Remember he was saying, one who is coming after me, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. So these guys, they were obviously sleeping through the sermon a little bit. They went through the waters, but they had missed a very important piece. And so these men are not saved. These men are close enough to the truth to think that they're in, but they're still lost. They're still in the dark. These are religious men. Um, These are men who feel bad about sin. They've expressed their repentance, these men. You'd probably call them good men. But according to the word of God, these were not saved men. They were lost. And I'll tell you, as I was reflecting on this passage, I have never once met a disciple of John the Baptist. I haven't, never once. But I have met a lot of people like this. And so have you. And, And perhaps some of you are people like this. 
people who have, have come to an experience of religion, uh, and they've, they've snoozed through a couple things, but they know enough to know that there's something wrong, and so I'm sorry about that. And they know enough to know that I want to do better, I want to be better, and so they, they, they become religious people and, and nice people and obedient people, but they're people who do not have the Spirit of God. They have not surrendered their lives to Jesus. And according to the text, they are still lost people, even though they've spent so much of their life living so close to the truth. In fact, when I look back at my own conversion, I, I really traced my own conversion to when I was in high school. And in that way, I feel like, in a sense, I kind of was one of these men. I was spiritually dead, even though I lived so close to the truth, and I sat under those sermons week after week, and then one day God just opened my eyes to see. And here in this text, these men who've been living so close to the truth, God opens their eyes to see. And in verse 5, everything in their lives changes. These men who were lost in dead religion come to life. He tells them, you've been baptized in what? In whose name were you baptized? They say, well, it was in John. And so then he says, well, you need to be baptized in Jesus. And in verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So this is a dramatic, everything's changed moment. And as I mentioned, I suspect that verse 6 is the kind of verse that prompts questions, right? As readers, we read that and we wonder, well, first of all, that sounds very dramatic. You might be asking the question, why doesn't that happen with us every time somebody gets saved? Um, And you might be asking the question, should that happen every time somebody gets saved? It's interesting, when you read through the book of Acts and you look at these stories of conversion, you could like make two columns. You could have a column of times when people put their trust in Jesus and then miraculous signs and prophecy and tongues burst out. But then you could make a column of times that people put their trust in Christ and were saved and things went on as normal. In both of those cases, those people were truly saved. And yet it's different. I mean, think about when um, the Ethiopian eunuch was saved and baptized. There was no explosion of tongues or prophecy, but that was the real thing. That's why that story's there. Or the Philippian jailer and his family. Similar, you know. God saves them, and yet there's no record of this explosion of gifts. And so the question is, what is is the purpose of this explosion of gifts? Why is this here? There are various explanations to this phenomenon, But I'll tell you, the explanation that makes the most sense to me in my study of the text and my study of even what the New Testament teaches, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul asks the rhetorical question, do all speak in tongues? And the answer is no. Um, We all have different gifts. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. So elsewhere he says, we're all going to have different gifts. So to be a Christian, you don't all need to have the same gift. So then what do we do with this? As I said, my, the explanation that makes the most sense to me is that these moments where God brings the tongues and prophecy as people come to Christ, these moments are serving a particular purpose. And that purpose is that they are validating that God is really in this work for the Christian worker and for the people who are being saved. When you think about the tongues and the prophecy, what does that experience remind you of that we read about in the book of Acts? Kind of points back to 
Pentecost, yeah, it wasn't a rhetorical question. You could answer if you wanted to. Pentecost, right? This, this is what happened at Pentecost. They received the Spirit, and then they're, they're speaking in tongues, the languages of the people, and they go out and they're prophesying, and it was an incredible, dramatic moment. It was God stamping and saying, this new covenant has been inaugurated, and the promises from the Old Testament are being fulfilled right here. And, and then, did that ever happen again? That like explosion of those gifts? It did, didn't it? When did it happen again? It happened when the gospel broke through to the Samaritans. The, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. It was, a, it was a very big deal that the Samaritans would then be brought into this new covenant community. And when the Samaritans got saved, with Jewish witnesses present, there was an explosion of tongues and prophecy, just like what we see here. It was God recreating Pentecost and showing him therein too. And then it happened again, didn't it? And when did it happen next? It's when the Gentiles were brought into the community of faith. The Gentiles, these people who were not born into the family of Abraham, these people who were not, we thought, the children of promise, and yet God says, oh, there was always the plan to bring them in. And so then the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak out in tongues and prophecy, and God recreates Pentecost again. And so you see, each time he's crossing a new, unexpected boundary, he's recreating this moment to validate to everybody who's involved that I'm in this. I'm doing a work here. This, this is from me. They are in just like, just like you. Commentator I. Howard Marshall explains, it's clear from the other stories of conversion in Acts that such manifestations took place spasmodically, sporadically, and were not the general rule. And then he lists times when people were saved and these things didn't happen. In the present case, some unusual gift was perhaps needed to convince this group of semi-Christians that they were now fully members of Christ's church. Remember that John's message was, you're a sinner and you need the Messiah and the Messiah is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so what did God do as he grafted these men into the family? He just put up a knee on side and said, boom, you're welcome, you have arrived, right? And there was no denying that we have now been baptized with this Holy Spirit and fire. God has done a work here. They needed to see that. They needed to receive that. And so, again, going back to an early question, does this mean that, that we should be expecting God to do this every time someone gets saved here in our congregation? And I would argue, no, that's not the lesson we're meant to take from this. G. Campbell Morgan, take it from a much older, wiser pastor, he cautions, we cannot base a doctrine of the Spirit's methods upon any one story. The important matter is that we have the Spirit, without whose presence and illumination we cannot preach this Christ or teach him. Amen. So I, I would just say to you, church, I don't believe that we're meant to take this passage and then launch into a debate about gifts in the church and, and what that looks like and those manifestations. I think we're meant to take from this the encouragement that if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are a child of God, God has put his Spirit in your heart, crying out, Abba, Father, which is to say, I am a child of God. We sang that in our first song. All of us have received this gift, and what a tremendous gift it is. And so I would argue, in fact, that what we're meant to take from this story, where Luke is leading us, I think, 
is that he's drawing a contrast between this, the baptism of John and Christian baptism. I think that's what we're meant to see here. And so I want to ask quickly here with our final question, what is Christian baptism? What is Christian baptism? If he's contrasting the two, and, and maybe you would argue, you know, you look down at the passage, you look at verse 19, and you, or chapter 19, and you'd say, I only see this baptism in Jesus' name in verse 5. How could you say that's the, that's the point? Well, I would argue that all of the misunderstanding about the baptism of John was leading us to verse 5, to this moment. And then this exciting moment of the Holy Spirit coming in tongues and prophecy, all of that is flowing out of verse 5. So when you look at the passage, everything is relating, like either leading into or coming out of this moment here in verse 5. This moment when they're baptized in Jesus' name and everything changes. That's the center. And so let's just consider that. They were missing something in baptism. They, were, they had received John's baptism, but there was something that they were missing. What might that be? I want to just draw out three lessons about Christian baptism. And truth be told, it's really one lesson just applied then two times after. But first and most foundationally, what is Christian baptism? It is a symbol of our union with Jesus. So Paul uses this language, particularly when he writes to the Romans. Um, I asked somebody one time, I said, where would you turn if you were going to be explaining to someone um, Christian baptism? If you wanted to kind of walk them through what that illustrates. The answer to that question is Romans 6. So by all means, turn to Romans 6 so you can see this. We're going to be looking at Romans 6 quite a bit as we think about this question. But in Romans 6, verses 3 to 5, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. I'll have more to say about those verses in a moment, but then turn to verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so the first thing we want to see in Christian baptism is that it is a symbol of our union with Christ. It is us saying that I am in him. That, that my old life is gone and now my life is a life that is in Christ. Baptism is one of the Christian sacraments. That's one of those words that perhaps you've never thought about what that means, sacrament. It comes from the Latin word sacramentum and it means to pledge allegiance. Did you know that? The baptism, when you think about that act of Christian baptism, that is you pledging allegiance to Jesus. That is you declaring that you are united with him. And the other Christian sacrament, communion, is you re-pledging, restating that initial pledge of allegiance. Right? That's why we would say that the Lord's Supper follows baptism. Um, this is why uh, I would encourage you, if you've not yet received Christian baptism, that you should not partake of the Lord's Supper because that is a, it's a restatement. It's like repeating your wedding vows. That's what we're doing. When you go into the water, you're saying that his death was your death. You're saying that the old you, the, the sinful you, the you that was, was born into this world, a descendant of Adam, the you that was born under the curse of sin, that that you died 
on the cross when Jesus died on the cross and was buried with him in that tomb. That old you is gone. And as you come up out of the water, you're saying that you are now a new creation, that you are now in Christ. And as he rose, so too do you rise to newness of life. That you're in him, that you're a whole new person, new creation, united now, not with Adam, not with the curse, but united with Christ. That's what we're saying. It's where Christian life begins. Baptism's often referred to as the initiatory rite in the Christian faith, the initiation. It's the birthday party, not the graduation. Baptism isn't the time when you say, hey, you know what, I, I, think, I've, I think I've arrived, I think I'm mature enough, I think I've earned this. No, baptism is when you say, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I believe that his life is my life, I'm, and I'm united with him. I believe that's my only hope. That's, it's the beginning which is what we see over and over again in the book of Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8 gets saved and then looks over and sees water and says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And the answer was nothing. And he was baptized. The Philippian jailer in chapter 16 gets saved. His family gets saved. And we read, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family And then we see it again here. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Which leads to a a challenge that I'd, I'd like to issue today. If you're here and you have placed your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you would say, I am united with him. I, ha- I do recognize that I'm a sinner and that he died for my sin and I've put my trust in him. If that's you and you have not been baptized, then you need to be baptized. He's called you to be baptized. It is the pledge of allegiance. It is the declaration. It is the initiatory rite. It is this sign of this new covenant that I am in, I'm in Christ. That's the first thing we need to see. And then as I said, two more, but really these two more are just an application, like a fleshing out of the first thing we saw. So baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. And second, it is a symbol of forgiveness received, which, by the way, we only receive because we're united with Christ. If you flip ahead a page or two in your Bible to Acts 22, you can see this. The Apostle Paul, he's talking about his faith and what God has done in his life, and he points back to his own conversion, and he points back to the time when he was baptized, and he's, there was a man named Ananias, and he came, and he shared the gospel with me, and that was an amazing story, which we preached a different day. But he says, he, he preached the gospel to me, and then in verse 16 of chapter 22, Ananias asks Paul, after Paul's put his trust in Jesus, Ananias asks him, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and listen, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so in our baptism, it is a symbol of the forgiveness of our sins. Now, we're not saying here that the physical act of that going under the water and coming out literally washes away your sin. No, of course not. It's a symbol. That's why we use the word symbol. What we are saying is that it is a a physical, visible demonstration of what God has done for us through Christ. When you come up out of that water, you should feel as, as that water's dripping off of you, you should feel in your soul that my sin has been washed off of me for good. My sin from yesterday, my sin from 
50 years ago, my sin from today, my sin from tomorrow, my sin from three years from now, all of my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I am forgiven. I am clean forever because I'm united with Jesus. That's what we're saying in baptism. And you should feel that when you come up out of the water. And that's, God has given us these physical, tangible signs because he knows that we're weak and we're frail and we need these things. You know, we need to feel that cleansing. It's good for us. In the same way that we need to taste the bread and and the juice and the wine and just remember that he is the one who satisfies us. He is our sustenance. We need that. You think back at these men. So remember, contrasting here in these stories, what was the baptism they knew? It was John's baptism. And John's baptism, two signs, right? It was a symbol of repentance, a symbol of anticipation. So think about it. It was a symbol of repentance. So those men had gone through the waters of baptism with John, and they had declared, I am a sinner. That was the message. I am sorry about it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change. I want to do better. I am a sinner. That's the only baptism they knew. And how sad it would be if that was the only baptism that you knew. Because that's not enough. Think about Christian baptism. Christian baptism picks up there, but it finishes the story. In Christian baptism, we get into that tank and we say, I am a sinner. I have sinned, and I've fallen short of the glory of God, and it's not right, and I need to live differently. But then we go on to say... And Jesus died for me. Jesus died for my sin. And he bore it on that cross. And therefore, I am forgiven. How terrible it would be if you only knew the first half of that equation. And can I just throw this out there? There are so many people, maybe even in this room, but certainly living amongst us in our city, who only know the first half of that equation. Who walk around knowing that there's a problem. Knowing that something is broken, something in me is wrong, feeling rotten about it, resolved to try and do better, just made the resolutions, I'm going to do better, but I know that there's a mess in me, I'm not the dad I want to be, not the husband I want to be, not the community person I want to be, something's wrong with me, but that's the only part of the equation they know. And in Christian baptism, we are declaring, there is an answer to that problem, and his name is Jesus. There is not just repentance for sin, but there is forgiveness for sin, and we have received it in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And we're declaring that through our baptism to the world, that it is forgiveness that we have now received, and we come up out of that water soaking wet with this tangible reminder that I am clean, not because I earned it, but because of what Jesus has done for me, and because I'm united with him. That brings us to the third symbol that we see here. And we could say more, but today we're going to limit ourselves here. Christian baptism is a symbol of new life received. If we look back at that passage in Romans 6 where the Apostle Paul is explaining this baptism, I read this just a moment ago. Let's look again at verse 4. He explains, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he's saying, because we are now united with Jesus, the Jesus who rose from the dead, we too now are going to walk in newness of life. And we've explained before, that means two things. 
First of all, that's an anticipation of our eternal resurrection, of our eternal life. He's declaring there that in the same way that Jesus walked out of his tomb three days after his crucifixion, we too are going to walk out of our graves when he calls us home. The grave won't hold me down. My grandmother's funeral, my uncles uh, sang, and my uncles, I didn't even know that they sang. They're actually quite good. Um, My family lives in, in America, my mom's side, so I don't see them as much as I'd like. But at that funeral, as they carried her casket out, they began to just sing, and it was this haunting moment I'll never forget. Um, I won't sing it for you now, but this, this old uh, gospel song, there ain't no grave that's going to hold this body down. There ain't no grave that's going to hold this body down. And just they, they sang this as they carried her out, and I will never forget that moment. So beautiful, so profound, so faith-filled. I was just sitting there. I got tears going, but I'm also just wondering, yes, yeah. The grave has been defeated. She's with Jesus. She is in Christ. And so we are going to bury her body in the ground now, but it's like we're pushing a seed into the ground. It's coming back up. Her resurrected body is coming back up because of Jesus. We know it because he already proved it and he promised it to us. So we face death in this life because of sin. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 6, if you read ahead a bit further, 623 he tells us the wages of sin is death. Did you, know, did you know that we're not supposed to die? That that's not actually a part of the original plan for us. We're not meant to die. It's an intrusion into this world. Which, by the way, whenever I'm preaching at a funeral, we all know this, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've, whether you've ever given a thought to spiritual things or whether you've suppressed that for your whole life, when we see death in our lives and we see sickness and cancer and this curse, there's something instinctively inside of us that says it shouldn't be this way. And you're right, it shouldn't be this way. Death, sickness, the whole lot of it is here because of sin. It's an intruder into God's perfect plan. And its days are numbered because Jesus has conquered the curse. He's conquered sin and therefore death. Which is why he can go on to say in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ, for free, we have received this gift. If we place our trust in Jesus and turn from our sin, we will live forever. The grave won't hold this body down. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Resurrection hope. So we're declaring that in our baptism. Newness of life. But we're also declaring another aspect of that. So that's resurrection of life, newness of life forever in glory with God. Yes, but it's also in that moment declaring newness of life now. That now I am a new creation. So I'm not just waiting. This isn't just a, you know, get out of the grave for free card that I'm I'm holding today. This is a, I am a new creation card. This is a, everything in my life is officially changed card. And everything has changed because now I'm united with Jesus and I'm filled with the Spirit of God, which is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to bring us into this new covenant. 
He came to unlock all of the promises of God that we see in the Old Testament. And we, if you were with us over Christmas, you saw we were just picking up all these different promises. The Old Testament is filled with hope that God is going to do something that's going to blow your mind. One of the promises is in Ezekiel, where God declared through the prophet, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Think back to these men received the baptism of John. They're declaring in those waters, I am a sinner and something is wrong with me and I need to do better. And they come out and do you think they did better? Perhaps a bit better. A bit better, but then of course you two steps forward, then one step back, and then two steps forward, and then three steps back, and isn't that life? Because the sad reality is that I, I actually am not able to live this life the way that I know that I should. I'm not able to control my thought life the way that I should. Sometimes I'll just think things that absolutely horrify me. I'm like, where did that come from? Or I'll say something, and I just wish that I could take that back, and I never can. My spouse, my kids, my coworker, that, those words I just said, those are out there now forever. It's going to impact them potentially for a lifetime. And, and I do things that I'm not supposed to do. And I'm trying, and I'm trying, but I can't do it. And God gives this promise. He says, you know what you need? You need a new heart. You know what more than that? You know what you need? You need me. What if I took up residence in you and I changed you from the inside out? That would be better, wouldn't it? And we all say, that would be better. And John the Baptist said, you're coming to me and I'm baptizing you with water, but you need more than me. You need the one who's gonna come and he's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He is gonna unlock the promises of God and pour them out in your life. And, and chief of that promise is that you will receive the Holy Spirit in you and you'll be able to live a new life. Not perfectly overnight, but by one degree of glory to the next. He's going to change what you want. He's going to change what you think. He's going to change what you say. He's going to change how you forgive. He's going to change how you experience and receive forgiveness. He's going to change everything in your life. The 12 men in Ephesus didn't understand this piece yet. They didn't see it. And again, so they, they sat close to the truth, but they didn't even know what they were waiting for. They likely didn't even know that they were lost. I thought, I'm a religious guy. I've said, sorry, I'm trying to do better. What more do you want? And so John, seeing these men, he asked them just a simple question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because he knew this is the litmus test. Because as we, we saw in Galatians 4, 6, you, if you are in Christ, then you've received the Spirit. You cannot be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. Any theological system that tells you that there are Christians that have the Holy Spirit and Christians that don't is wrong. Every one of us possesses the Holy Spirit. So John asks them the litmus test, have you received the Holy Spirit? They say, we haven't even heard. And then you can just imagine Paul lighting up. All right, I've got some good news for you. And he baptizes them in the name of Jesus. And they're filled with the Spirit in a demonstrable, undeniable way. And everybody who's watching says, whoa, this is what God promised he would do, and he's doing it in these men. And these guys who were lost in powerless, dead religion, who had spent a lifetime living so close to the truth, sitting right there, just doing their best, being diligent, religious, obedient, good, nice, but dead, 
suddenly they came to life and everything changed for these men. And so I just want to leave you with a question this morning and I won't belabor it because I think the reality is some of you are already, the Holy Spirit's been asking you this question, you've been poking, prompting. Are you one of those people who has been living in dead religion for a lifetime? Sitting so close to the truth but, but not yet surrendering to Christ, not yet experiencing the power of being united with Christ, not yet receiving the Holy Spirit, which changes everything, and you've been living a life of diligence and duty and just trying to get there, and yet you know that I am missing it. Whatever this is that I'm living through, this isn't it. I need him. And maybe for some of you, you've not yet been baptized. You have not yet pledged your allegiance to Christ, and you're, you're just kind of waiting. You're just you're watching and And today, my prayer for you is not because of any manipulating from me or anything I've said, but that God, by his spirit, would just be prompting and preparing you. I love in this passage, there's no arm twisting. Paul doesn't sit down with them and say, well, you knuckleheads, what do you know? You haven't done it. You you get in the water. Let's do this thing. And he just, he tells them. It's like, don't you know this whole thing, John's whole thing, was preparing you to receive this gift. It's been preparing you to receive Jesus and to be united with him. And then we immediately jump to verse five. And they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And so I don't feel any urgency to twist your arm today. Instead, I want to turn to the Lord and I want to pray. And I want to say this. If today he's poking you, prompting you, and you know you need to respond, then I want to challenge you. Don't rush out of here. We would love to talk to I would love to talk with you. The people sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, We would love to talk with you, pray with you. And boy, we can fill up that baptismal tank in a hurry. So next Sunday could be baptism Sunday real easily. So I'm going to pray for us now. And uh, yeah, I'm just thankful. I trust the Lord will speak. So Heavenly Father, we love you. God, I thank you for this incredible gift of grace that we have received. I thank you for your mercy towards us. I thank you that the message of the Bible and the message of the gospel is not that God looked at the world and assessed the world and found people who deserved grace and then challenged them to work hard so that they could earn grace. It's that you so love the world that you sent your own son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have life and life everlasting. I love that the story of the Bible is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I thank you, God, for your mercy for broken, lost people, even stubborn people, even, even people stuck in dead religion. God, that there is mercy for us in Christ. And so I pray that today we would be enabled to receive it. And Lord, as I pray for those who have not yet received it and those who have not yet or surrendered to you I also want to pray today for your people who have received it and yet Lord we are prone to wander and we we take our eyes off of Jesus and like Peter we find ourselves sinking sometimes into despair and despondency and Lord we lose the sweet savor of Christ in our lives Lord would you minister in us and open our eyes to see once again this grace that's ours And help us to respond accordingly, Lord, and to live accordingly with true repentance. That's that's not just sorry, but that changes and turns. We can only do that by your strength. So we ask for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Worship team, would you lead us?